Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Aldabra, a coral atoll in the Indian Ocean, is one of the most remote islands in the world. The island itself is uninhabited, save for a very small research base on one corner of the island. And the sea around it is very well protected. I don't think you can go within 50 miles of the island. And when you go there, you really do feel like, you know, you're, you're seeing things that very, very few people have seen. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's trying to get as far away from other people as possible. Our entire planet has been shaped now by humans. And there are just very few places you can go to where you can see nature without our influence. And that kind of remoteness, that kind of sort of isolation from other humans is, is I find it quite thrilling. In this episode, we're taking a look at how far the influence of human beings has spread across the face of our planet, for better or worse and wondering if it's even possible to get away from it entirely. And a coral atoll in the middle of the Indian Ocean is a good place to start. Not many people know this, but coral atolls are actually extinct volcanoes. So when a volcano comes out of the sea, it creates a cone, you know, a, uh, an island. And over time, that island slowly starts to sink into the sea floor. And as it does so, coral reef grows up around the edges. And eventually, the island itself disappears completely beneath the waves, leaving a lagoon in the middle, surrounded by a coral reef. And that's what Aldabra is. It's an extinct volcano. For many of us, the quintessential idea of a place free of humans is one from storybooks. The desert island. A spit of land miles from anywhere, where there's nothing but the sound of the breaking waves and the calling of birds. If you want to get away from the influence of humans, you might think that Aldabra, 400 kilometres northwest of Madagascar, is a good candidate. But actually, it might be a perfect example of just how far and how deep the traces of humanity can be found. Hugh Cordy was there on a filming mission. My name is Hugh Cordy. I'm a series producer with Silverback Films in Bristol. It's very idyllic with turquoise waters, shallow coral seas where you can see turtles and and rays and all kinds of things it's it's really really idyllic and golden sandy beaches Hugh is the series producer of A Perfect Planet the BBC natural history series we've been following along with here on the podcast and he was on Aldabra to film the island's residents giant tortoises they're the last giant tortoises in the Indian Ocean and there are now a hundred thousand of them um, who have literally got the run of the of the island. 
They do look very prehistoric, very ancient animals. They have an air about them that says, I've been around for a long time. And giant tortoises don't really make much in the way of sound. The only sound I heard a giant tortoise making is the hissing sound as they pull their neck into their shell. So if you approach a giant tortoise from behind and, and just surprise it, it pulls its head into its shell and you hear this hiss. And that hiss comes from its head being pulled back in and squashing its lungs and pushing out air. You can't help liking giant tortoises. I mean, they're sort of fairly dim-witted looking, but they're just gentle giants. They have one of those very appealing faces. They look as if they're smiling. And the fact that they don't seem bothered by your presence, ones on Altabra at least, does make them even more appealing. It's astonishing to think there are 100,000 of them there. It was almost like, like one of those zombie films with uh, hundreds of giant tortoises slowly plodding their way across the limestone landscape, slowly moving their way towards you. How does a tortoise get to an atoll? I mean, it's a very good question because they're fairly ungainly animals. The thing you need to know about tortoises is that they can go without food or water for long periods of time, and they float extremely well. That's how they got to all those distant islands. That's how they got to the Galapagos. And that's how they colonised huge numbers of islands in the Indian Ocean. When they set off from the mainland, they probably weren't giant tortoises. That's one of the strange things about islands. It can change the shape of animals. Very often, islands produce large animals, you know, giant skinks, giant birds like the moas of New Zealand. But Aldabra is the last one where the giant tortoises of the Indian Ocean survive. The fact that they're the last of their kind is the first trace of humanity on this distant island. They're large, slow and, unfortunately, delicious. Unfortunately, in places like the Galapagos, it made them highly sought after by sailors. Many disappeared and nearly went extinct because sailors would stop off at the Galapagos, pick up these giant tortoises and just brought them on deck, turned them over on their shells and just left them until they were ready to eat them so they'd be like fresh food. So their size didn't always do them a service. On Aldabra, hungry sailors have left the fingerprints of humanity right inside the tortoise's genetic code. The island is divided by deep channels of water, which the tortoises can't cross. The two populations don't interbreed. On one side, they're genuinely enormous, 250 kilos, with the peak of their shells coming up to mid-thigh. On the other side, they're much smaller, you know, you might even describe them as just large, ordinary tortoises rather than giant tortoises. There is a theory that the tortoises on the more barren side had all their large animals picked off by sailors, so the genetics of these animals changed. But that's not the only human influence on the island. There's a small research station where scientists study the tortoises and the island's unique bird life. And there's another mammal on the island that really shouldn't be here, humanity's closest companion, the rat. Arriving on ships, they've made the island their own. Eliminating the rat population is one of the island's ongoing challenges. But perhaps the most shocking sign of the human world, which reaches across the ocean to the shores of Aldabra, can be found on one corner of the atoll, where the currents from the African mainland pass through.
you would definitely expect it to be free of human influence given how few people are there. And the only people are there are there to protect the place. But uh, on one corner of the island where we did the majority of our filming, the beach was literally ankle deep in plastics. There was just tons of it. You know, we're talking about ballpoint pens, toothbrushes, um, lots of fishing gear, you know, boys, uh, plastic bottles, just huge quantities of stuff that had been washed in on currents from the African mainland, which was, you know, some distance away. And the tortoises were probably eating this stuff because they were grazing in the grass, they were grazing around the plastics. Um, so, you know, that was, that was difficult to see. The majority of the items, strangely, were flip-flops, which probably accounted for 60 or 70% of the waste. I guess flip-flops are like little boats, so, you know, when they fall off people's feet, you know, they can float from like a giant tortoise for, for many, many miles, and they just set off and on these ocean journeys being washed around by ocean currents. A lot of the flip-flops were left-footed flip-flops, and I was trying to think of a reason for it. I'm sure left-footed flip-flops don't float better than right-footed flip-flops. And I'm not sure the, uh, the angle of a left-footed flip-flop doesn't catch currents better than the angle of a right-footed flip-flop. But maybe there's, a, there's an island further south in a different gyre that has all the right-footed flip-flops. And uh, maybe, you know, they should get together with Aldabra and see if they can pair them up and recycle them. I mean, it, it's a very poignant experience because you've gone to a place that is further away than you can imagine, you know, that doesn't have and hasn't had any real human habitation apart from a dozen or so researchers. And you see the impact of humanity on this island. Even in the most remote parts of the planet, you know, human influence is still present. If you want to see these gentle prehistoric giants yourself, you can check out A Perfect Planet, where you can also find out about the epic beach clean the team did while they were on the island. A Perfect Planet is out now in the UK, and check the BBC Earth website for when you can see it where you are. Fascinated by A Perfect Planet? Discover more with the official companion book to the series, packed with over 250 full-colour images and including a foreword by Sir David Attenborough. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're looking at the impact, for better or worse, that humans have on the shape of the planet. For our next story, we're on another island. Another volcano, in fact, also far out in the middle of the ocean. The Atlantic, this time. But this one is, in geological terms, brand new. A mere one million years old. 
Ascension is primarily rather arid volcanic island. It's right in the middle of the Atlantic, so it's a long way from anywhere else. David Wilkinson is a visiting professor of ecology at the University of Lincoln in the UK, and he's fascinated by the flora of this baby ecosystem. Its natural history, when people found it, was not extensive. Around about 25 plant species, but about 10 of those had evolved in situ and were found nowhere else in the world. Ascension is that classic volcanic island shape, a roundish cone with a big mountain in the middle. The ground varies from black volcanic rock to scorched red-brown earth, with the occasional patch of low-lying scrub. It looks more like the surface of Mars than anything on Earth. That's what it looked like when Charles Darwin landed on Ascension in 1836. Darwin actually, in his account of his travels, writes a little bit about it, and what he says is the island is entirely destitute of trees, in which, and in every other respect, it is far inferior to St Helena. The witty people of the latter place say, we know we live on a rock, but the poor people on Ascension live on a cinder. And it is, it's very, very arid, desert, volcanic sort of conditions. That was the island in 1836. Fast forward to today, and a lot of it still looks the same. With one exception. That mountain in the middle of the island. Now, around 180 years after Darwin climbed it and called it a cinder, the mountain is transformed into a lush, dense green wonderland, dripping with greenery and teeming with life. So at the time Darwin walked at Green Mountain, the largest common plants were ferns, you know, about the size of bracken. And what you have now is what's probably best described, particularly on the top of the mountain, is cloud forest. Trees, bamboos growing up into the mist, extensive vegetation, and it's wet. Particularly as you climb up the path towards the very top of Green Mountain, it's really quite wet and slippery. Uh, slipping over is good, though, actually, because you tend to find nice little creepy crawlies. But it's damp. Much of the time you're actually in, in cloud. A tropical forest has been created really just since the 19th century. So what happened? The answer? Humans happened. The story of the transformation of ascension starts as an ecological side note in a much bigger piece of human history. It starts with Napoleon Bonaparte. After his empire collapsed, the British captured Napoleon and exiled him to somewhere they thought he couldn't cause any more trouble. To Ascension's slightly more hospitable neighbour, the island of Santa Lina, in 1815. And then someone at the Admiralty said, well, actually then, we need to stick marines on Ascension to make sure that it can't be used as a base for a rescue mission to get Napoleon back. And so the Royal Navy sort of occupy Ascension Island and stick marines there. Now, poor old marines, they really weren't entirely taken with this. I mean, it is a very, very arid island away from anywhere, very little fresh food, very little shade. And the Admiralty had this idea, well, what we need to do is to actually improve the environment on Ascension Island for people. The Admiralty turned to a botanist for help. Not Darwin, but a young friend and colleague of his, Joseph Hooker. Botany was a family business, so there are several generations of hookers. Joseph is the, the younger uh, hooker. His father is already an established botanist, but he was coming back from a trip to the Antarctic where he'd been the botanist on the expedition. And they said, well, as you stop at Ascension, can you have a look around and make some suggestions about how to improve the environment? And effectively what Hooker said is, what you need are trees. 
Trees will give you shade. Trees take up water from the soil and they create rain as it evaporates from their leaves. And so the Admiralty said, right, we'll go with that. And they started importing all sorts of plants, sort of stuck them out there to see what grew and what didn't. Thus began a landscaping project, the likes of which had never been seen before and will probably never be seen again. Year after year, ship after ship, packed to the gunwales with plants from all over the world, in particular from Kew Gardens in London, where Joseph's father was in charge. Remember, at this stage, you know, in the 19th century, the British Navy sort of rules the world. It's a very powerful institution. It's got the people, it's got the boats, it's got the connections, it can do it. And so they shipped in plants from effectively all around the world because they were importing them from botanic gardens to see what grows. Putting in the trees and the plants starts to alter the whole system. The plants, as they grow, the trees in particular, grow upwards and they make the vegetation more three-dimensional. And because the main source of water here are the clouds being blown in on the trade winds, water settles out on the twigs and it settles out on the trunks and the leaves. All of this is water that with those trees weren't there would just blow straight across and back out to sea. But now it settles out and it drips down into the soils. As you get more plants to grow and bigger plants to grow, their roots start to stabilise sediments that would otherwise wash away and you start to get soils and things developing. Once plants colonise land, they again alter the water cycle, effectively increasing the amount of rainfall and therefore again making it then better for plants, which then increase rainfall, which make it better for plants. Prior to people starting to mess around like this, there was only about 25 or so species of plant growing on the island. The last attempt at a reasonably comprehensive list had you know, over 280 plant species. So you know, we've got this entirely human-constructed forest sat on the top of Ascension Island. These days, Ascension Island's peak is known as Green Mountain. There's even a lake near the top, formed by the water cycle created by the trees. The thing about the top of Green Mountain is the sound, because you've got this tall bamboo growing right on top in the trade winds. So these things are banging together. You close your eyes, it's like standing next to a colossal collection of giant bamboo garden wind chimes as all these bamboo stalks bang into one another as the trade winds blow across the top. Interesting thing is, of course, is rather later in life, Hooker sort of reflects on this and writes that uh, he rather worried that actually it's been very bad for the species that were living there before all of these changes happened. And yes, indeed, we know at least three have gone extinct and many of the others are now quite rare. So from the point of view of conventional conservation, Green Mountain is a disaster. It's covered in introduced species and several of the things that are supposed to be there have gone extinct. But from other aspects, providing shade, providing moisture, locking up carbon, better soils, it's been a good thing. So, you know, it's often the case that improving things in one way there are downsides, you're making things worse in another. And there are other lessons we might be able to learn from invented man-made ecosystems like Green Mountain. If we can turn one bleak Martian landscape into a lush, human-friendly habitat, then perhaps we can transform another one too. How might you make, say, a planet like Mars suitable for human habitation with the more science fiction idea of terraforming? 
And the idea with terraforming is you make some small changes that allow life to get going. And then as life develops, it starts to alter the environment into a more life-friendly condition and eventually into a more human-friendly condition. What you need to do is to give Mars a greenhouse effect and then once you warm the place up and have liquid water and then you can introduce some basic life, the basic life increases the life-friendly conditions and slowly you have a, a, a whole planet. I mean, in, in principle, you can see how it might just be done. In practice, far too difficult, far too expensive and also in practice, ethically really rather dubious. I mean, there may be the tail end of you know, life on Mars, the odd bacterial type thing still there. If it's sad to destroy the native species on a remote oceanic island, just think how sad it would be to destroy life on another planet. Unlike the rapid change on Green Mountain, a lot of the environmental changes humanity makes are very, very slow. Over thousands of years and many generations, a landscape can be transformed by human use, but you might not notice it within your own lifetime. Jungle turns to savanna, savanna into grassland, and grassland into desert. But even changes thousands of years in the making are reversible if we put our minds to it. Journalist Judith D. Schwartz thinks it all comes down to what we, as a society, choose to value the most. The way that humans have practiced agriculture has been largely about mining the soil, taking everything away, uh, removing plants, removing trees, removing nutrients. When we look at a landscape, we tend to think that it's always been that way. But it's important to understand that land is always in flux. It's always moving towards one state of function or another. And when we look at many parts of the world and we see the land is lifeless and desertified and people are struggling, it hasn't always been that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. There's an understanding that humans are desert-making beings. And this happens through many processes, and sometimes this happens over a long period of time. While it may be hard for us to imagine today, parts of what are now Jordan, Libya and Yemen were thickly wooded. The Sahara Desert, the archetypal desert of childhood drawings, has not always been scorching sun and rippling sand. It was once full of life. It was even talked about as the Green Sahara. If you look at the landscape using satellites, you can see the lines of the former river systems traced in the earth. At this point, we're continuing to kind of unspool the history of the Sahara and to understand exactly what changed in order to create the desert that we know. But it seems really clear that human activity played a huge role in that. We have created deserts and that helps us understand how we can turn back deserts, and we can bring life back to these lands. One of the examples that really inspired me to explore ecological restoration more deeply is the Los Plateau in China. 3,000 years ago, farmers settled in the Los Plateau and struck gold. 
not literal gold, better than that. The land was extremely fertile, with a large sweeping river carving through it. By the 7th century, these rich soils were feeding about a quarter of the Chinese population. But over time, the way people were farming the landscape was depleting the soil. The dusty component of that soil became prominent and there was tremendous erosion from wind, from water. The area needed for agriculture expanded. More trees were felled and hillsides that used to help trap water were cleared for farming. Therefore, all that soil was going into the Yellow River and silting it up. The Yellow River, so-called for all the rich sediment that it dragged along, mostly from the Los Plateau. So it was causing problems on, on all angles, in the landscape and in the riverbed. By the 20th century, the Los Plateau's soil was dusty and degraded. The land had become desert, and the remaining population were condemned to poverty. But in the 1990s, the government and the World Bank made a bold intervention. They decided to pay local people to restore their landscape. While it was a top-down operation with leadership and the government in charge, but people in small villages throughout the region were very involved. It was literally millions of people working together. In the Los Plateau, one important part was removing the grazing animals from the landscape so that the land had a chance to recover. And then some very simple techniques, such as building terraces, which had the effect of slowing down the rain and holding the water in the landscape. And then it was a matter of planting the right plants that would create food. So it would be grasses and brush and food-bearing trees. And really the combination of those strategies is what allowed that land to flourish once again. The amazing thing was just how large a landscape this helped to repair. And it's an area the size of Belgium that was brought back to ecological function. So you look at the pictures and within about 14 years, it's gone from brown and bare and barren to full of trees and green and about two million people were brought out of poverty. So this tells us that it's possible. The land benefits, people benefit, we're creating more beauty, creating more abundance, less poverty, and yeah, we can do this everywhere because every landscape has its own logic and its own patterns that we can work with. Even though, obviously, you and I are not going to have a large area of land to work with, we can use the same principles. We can understand the importance of holding water in the landscape and do that in many different ways, from rain barrels to swales. 
putting small earthworks in and guiding the flow of water. And really through observing what plants thrive in which places and understanding which little microclimates on our own properties or in our own community gardens are calling for different kinds of plants, we can work with natural processes just the way that people did in large projects on the other side of the world. In this great work, we have terrific models that we can replicate, and also we see terrific cause for hope. We're lucky enough to have a record of the Los Plateaus transformation because of filmmaker John D. Liu, who documented it from the start. Check out his film, Regreening the Desert. And if you want more inspiring stories of people power and the restoration of planet Earth, Judith has many more of those in her book, The Reindeer Chronicles. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Today's stories were produced by Eliza Lomas and me, Emily Knight. We're taking a little break for a month while we gather more stories of the wide, wild world to feed into your ears. In the meantime, make sure you're subscribed, tell a friend, or leave us a review where you pick us up. It really helps people find us. And of course, subscribe to our newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter. Watch this space. We'll be back with more very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.